Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Happy New Year to you all. You know, the new year is a time for reflection as much as it is about the possibilities of the future. Some of you might have spent the holidays thinking about the past while you mapped out the road ahead. Perhaps you dug into your family history, even as you tried to avoid your relatives around the dinner table. Well, family histories, as you'll hear on today's episode, mattered a great deal to early Americans. For wealthy and middling families alike, lineage, one's family tree, was a reflection of the past, but it was also a roadmap to the future. Early Americans like George Washington obsessed over genealogy as a matter of inheritance, custom, and law. On today's episode, Dr. Karen Wolf helps us to understand the powerful force that genealogy played in early American life. It was as important for free men like Washington as it was for the people he held in bondage. Dr. Wolf is a professor of history at the College of William & Mary, where she's also the director of the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture. She joined me in studio on her last day as a research fellow here at the Washington Library. Dr. Wolf and I also discussed the Georgian Papers Program, an initiative centered on that other major George in the American Revolution, as well as her work at the Omohundro Institute. Now, before we get started, we just want to say hello to all our new subscribers. We're delighted to have you here. And now, let's climb the Washington family tree with Karen Wolf. Karen Wolf, hello. Thank you very much for being here. Um, this is very exciting for me for a number of reasons, uh, which I'm sure will come out um, over the, the course of the podcast. But, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I'm sitting in this job because of chances you took on me with the oh. Georgian Papers program. That's nice of you to say, Jim. Uh, well, I think it's true. And so I want to talk about that other George <laughs> here in a little bit. Um, <laughs> You know, there was another George involved in the American Revolution, so we should we should talk about him a little bit. But um, you've been at the Washington Library on a research fellowship here for a few months now, uh, and today is the last day, right? My very last day. Uh-huh. I would like to drag it out as long as I can, but I think, alas, I have to say this is the last day. I've uh-huh. had a three-month fellowship, which I've done over about 14 months. <laughs> so I don't think I can extend yeah. it anymore. Well, we can just apply for another one and then yeah. just go from there. <laughs> Seems like a good plan. So, I mean, what, what brought you to the library? Uh, you know, I do want to talk about uh, a more specific project that you had come out in the Smithsonian recently, but uh, what, what was your, your general purpose for coming to the library as a research fellow? Well, I've had a book that I've been working on for a really long time. And when I say really long time, I mean actually decades. For a variety of reasons, the particular project has taken a long time. Um, issues in my own career, which have meant that I have not had sabbaticals and I mm-hmm. haven't had dedicated research time, but also other projects that I completed and published in between. Um, but this project I've been working on for decades now is coming to completion, and I really needed a place where I could do some work, where I had the support of a library, but where I could write in peace and quiet. Mm-hmm. And this is the perfect place, really. It's been incredibly um productive time for me and just a really lovely place to be. I think it's a really great community of scholars um, and a wonderful institution. Yeah. And so w- what is the specific project you've been working on? I mean, we, we don't want to give away the keys to the kingdom, certainly, but um, <laughs> can you talk in general terms about... Well, I've been talking about this book so much, and I've, I've published <laughs> bits and pieces of it, so I don't think there's any... I don't think there are going to be any big, big surprises, although I think some of the depth of material... Um, will be intriguing, and I think the specifics of the argument will be, um, I hope, 
um, significant and certainly interesting to people. Anyway, so this book is um, it's called Lineage, mm-hmm. and it's about the politics of connection and the use of genealogy in the long 18th century mm-hmm. in British America. So the book looks at genealogy from two dimensions and as a kind of twin, I guess I could call it a double-edged sword or a double-sided coin, but genealogy in the way that individuals and families use this affective, very meaningful, intimate practice mm-hmm. of detailing their family connections, but also genealogy in the way that the state and other organizations use family connection for purposes of governance. Well, one of the things that interests me about the project is, you know, it, in our own time, people are very interested in genealogy. You know, we, we have web uh, platforms to conduct that genealogical research. Um, I mean, my my grandfather spent the last few years of his life researching my dad's side of the family, uh, and I you know, I remember being very interested in it, in it, and but not making you know too many big claims about it. I mean, I was, it was cool that I had a uh, ancestor who was a bugler in the Union Army. Um, that was pretty neat. But in terms of thinking about um, what it says about uh, um, my own family's quote unquote power, to the extent that there is any, never crossed my mind, but. You know, one of the big points I think you're looking at is how men like Washington and other people in early America are exercising authority and power through lineage. Yes, that's absolutely um, the last couple of chapters of the book. Um, And in fact, Washington, I thought Washington was going to anchor the final chapter, but it turns out that my book had other plans, and so that's actually the penultimate chapter. (laughs) So, um, But in any case, yes, the last two chapters of the book um, look at Washington and political elites, but the majority of the book actually is not concerned with elites Mm. and their interest in genealogy at all. Mm. It's about... Um, impoverished people, middling people, and how and why they explore genealogy mm-hmm. exa- exactly for these two reasons. Some of them are intimate and affective, the, the sense of meaning um, that they associate with family connections. But the other piece of it is why genealogy mm-hmm. is absolutely an essential practice. I mean, the law essentially requires people to mm-hmm. understand their genealogical connections, and that's part of the major um, argument of the book. So for, for the middling sort, can you give, give us one example about uh, of why genealogy would have mattered to them in ways that it may have differed uh, in mattering to Washington? We sort of have to back up and look at why and how genealogy is, as I argue, kind of foundational to British American culture. And Mm -hmm. it has to do with, I say, I will argue, um, kind of three platforms for authority. One is religion, one is law, and one is governance. And Mm -hmm. in each of those three realms, genealogy is quite foundational. So let's just start with religion. British America is foundationally Protestant um, in its uh, the colonial authorities um, and the, the church, uh, the authorized church here is Protestant, whether those are congregational churches in New England or whether it's the actual mm-hmm. um, authorized church of England in Virginia and the Carolinas in the colonial period um, or in the post-revolutionary period, other new denominations. It's Protestant. The Protestant church is rooted in two biblical lineage stories. The Mm -hmm. Old Testament is a lot, a lot, a lot about genealogy. Begat, begat, begat. And those begats are not (laughs) inconsequential. And the New Testament is fundamentally about the lineage of Jesus Mm -hmm. and his descent from the house of David. Um, Those genealogies of the Bible are quite important. It's not accidental that people record their family histories within Bibles. We can get to that in a minute because Bibles aren't actually the primary repository for family histories in the 18th century. Um, But there is a a kind of conceptual connection between biblical stories of lineage and Mm -hmm. 
family record practices. But churches um, have another crucial role in genealogy, which is churches are charged with recording family information, births, marriages, and deaths. It is fundamental to the law. Almost the first law that is passed in Virginia, for example, requires parishes to record births, marriages, and deaths. Keeping track of family connections is a fundamental practice of religious organization Mm -hmm. and also theology. So that's one example. We could switch to law and say, well, how is the law fundamentally genealogical? British law and then British American law is very foundationally about property, Mm -hmm. and property Mm -hmm. is about inheritance, and inheritance is about genealogy. Mm -hmm. If you look at William Blackstone's, um, which for the purposes of this conversation, let's just let Blackstone stand in for British law. I know there are lots of problems with that. We could could talk books and lots of footnotes (laughs) about why that's a problematic (laughs) assertion. But just if you look at Blackstone, the first thing that Blackstone published was actually a guide to understanding family relations for purposes of sorting out inheritance uh-huh. that he did for his, as a um, almost as a, a textbook for his students. And mm-hmm. that became part of Blackstone's commentaries, which a massive percentage of is about how you understand family relationships for inheritance. Yeah. Um, so the law is very much about genealogy and understanding family relations. And then the last is governance, of course, monarchy and succession and why that's so important. But the question you asked is, why would a middling person care about their genealogy? And I think, you know, we have this misconception that genealogy in some period before our own was, A, not that popular. That's Mm -hmm. not true. It's actually been, there's a consistent interest in genealogy across time and actually around the world. Um, But the other misconception is that, um, that it's really only for elites who care about demonstrating some kind of illustrious lineage through which they can get some form of either social capital mm-hmm. or actual money, you know, yeah. like make a connection. Let's prove that we're related to so-and-so so that we can show that we have this inheritance. But for ordinary middling people, let's say um, farmers with um, with very little property, maybe they have actually no real estate, but just a little bit of uh, maybe they have livestock or so on, um, it really matters who they've inherited from mm-hmm. and who will inherit their property. So genealogy is at a foundational level basic to their subsistence. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we think about genealogy and the very real and violent circumstances of genealogy for enslaved people, it's – anyway, once you start to think about genealogy beyond the kind of stereotypes or Mm -hmm. tropes, you see how um, it is kind of all over. So the book – the sources for the book are similarly kind of mm-hmm. all over. Well, and that's one of the questions I wanted to, to ask you or, or one of the big concepts I wanted to talk about today because, you know, if you look at a family tree, you're like, hey, that's neat. That's a family tree. It's got, you know, birth and death dates. Um, but then you're looking at this um, this constructed thing, and, and you, one of the things you have to do is sort of make sense of what it all means. And you recently were actually in the summer um, published an article in the Smithsonian Magazine about a document that Washington biographers have long ignored. It is a very simple two-page document, and we'll link to it on on the show page for this episode. But out of that document, you pulled out significant meanings about what Washington as a young man was trying to do when he was on his ascent, uh, and then later in life when he was trying to make sense of, uh, of the state of his property. And so... Can you tell us about that document? What what is it, and what did you find? Sure. So this is um, this is a document that is at the Library of Congress in the Washington Papers. Um, they have it dated as 1753. It's not. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which happens all the time sometimes. Well, actually, I I wrote a piece for the Washington um, Papers blog, too, that says a little bit more about why uh, why that misdating may have happened. It had to do with mm-hmm. the way that Washington papers came to the Library of Congress mm-hmm. via the State Department. But it also says a lot about why um, catalogers, just like biographers, have not found, and, and documentary editors, mm-hmm. too. This this piece is not in any of the Washington papers, including the contemporary authoritative oh, papers of George yeah. Washington. Why have people ignored this document? Well, it seemed like an inconsequential thing. So what it is, uh, hard for us to describe it here in words, but much better that yeah. you're going to link to it yeah, so people see it. can see it, right? But it is, um, uh, it is essentially a crude family tree mm-hmm. that George Washington drew um, that includes his great-grandfather, his grandfather's father, his own generation, and then the next generation, his, um, his brother's children. George Washington drew this family tree when he was still in his teens. It was, uh, he drew it either um, between the ages of 16 and 18. Um, and we can date that because of the people he includes on this family tree oh, for reasons that I get into kind of more granular detail about um, in, in both of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a fascinating document. It, I think, uh, you know, the fact that editors of the Washington Papers just blew past it and thought it wasn't consequential and yeah. it wasn't important to include suggests maybe they thought maybe George didn't write it. Maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't his. Happily, we have um, things that he wrote around the same time, like his mm-hmm. Barbados diary. Sure. So the editor of that volume, one of the editors of that volume, Lynn Price, um, an associate editor at the Washington Papers, um, confirmed my diagnosis of the handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a lot of, you know, <laughs> matching of letters and so on to show, no, this really was, George was really writing this. Um, but also they may have thought, you know, this doesn't strike us as a particularly manly exercise to be yeah. detailing his genealogy, when in fact there was nothing more um, kind of masculine in the 18th mm-hmm. century than asserting the rights of uh, lineage property, mm-hmm. which is basically what he was doing there when he is drawing the connection um, that explains how he comes to have the property that he does. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's, what's interesting about it is, well, many things that are interesting about it. One of the things that's interesting about it is that he is so detailed about the children mm-hmm. in his direct line. So he includes every one of his father's children, including by his father's first wife. So as you well know, Washington is the eldest son sure. of um, his father's second wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but he details the children of that first marriage, his father's first marriage too, including the very first child who died as just a toddler. Mm. So who would have died, you know, decades before Washington was born, but yeah. he includes him on that family tree. So he's very detailed about his own line. And um, that's, I think, really interesting. It shows mm-hmm. us how much information he has available to him about his family. Um, and also how invested he is in the particularity um, of people in his direct line. Again, inheritance. Yeah, so, I mean, inheritance is very much at the forefront of his mind then when he's composing this. But, you know, it's not clear by that point, you know, exactly what he's going to inherit, you know, what he, in both in terms of physical, real property, uh, and but also in human property. And right. so, you know, is this him sort of thinking about uh, what the future might look like for him and in, in knowing full well that death is a very real present part of life in the 18th century and that something might fall to him quicker than he might have anticipated? Well, you know, I've managed um, 
decades in a career as a historian of early America without trying to get into George Washington's head. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, but what's interesting in reading people who have tried to get into mm-hmm. George Washington's head is how little we know about these early years. That is, there is a recent very good book, in mm-hmm. fact, you interviewed the author, about young George Washington. Um, there are people who have written about this earlier period more recently, that Barbados diary that's yeah. wonderful has been edited. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the paper trail picks up when he joins the military. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, you know, in, in the early 1750s, the paper trail picks up there um, or the surviving paper trail, I should say. And that's really, even for the young George Washington mm-hmm. book, that's really where things pick up. This is before then. Yeah. So what do we know about him in that period? Mm-hmm. What we know is that in the same period he was writing this, um, that he wrote this this genealogical tree, um, he was doing surveying. You know, he mm-hmm. starts surveying when he's 15 years old. He's, I mean, it's amazing, really, the detailed work that he is doing as a fairly young person mm-hmm. and the kind of responsibility he has to do that. But when you're a surveyor, you think about property all day long, right? right. You're out there marking out property. <laughs> property, <laughs> and just to reiterate, property is about inheritance. Um, I think it would be unusual for someone who was in George Washington's position, the eldest son of the second marriage, Mm-hmm. Um, who has older brothers, um, his older brother Lawrence, most importantly, he's very close to, who is who is clearly the heir, his father's heir mm-hmm. of the first marriage. Um, it would be unusual for him not to think about what is my position here and yeah. what what is going to happen to me. He doesn't know at that point that his brother is going to die, and he doesn't know that mm-hmm. his brother will die without leaving any surviving children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's not calculating what has to happen for me to inherit, I think he's just positioning himself, sure. really, trying to understand what is my position. And, you, you know, you can see that in quite visual terms. Mm-hmm. What is his position vis-a-vis the rest of mm-hmm. the family? In a lot of ways, he's no different than in, in anybody else in Virginia. Or, you know, in fact, even in England, who men who are the second, third, fourth, fifth sons of uh, aristocratic proprietors are trying to figure out, you know, what their standing is in the family and what, what their future might look like. Absolutely. So in, in a lot of ways, too, this document is also about the history of, of Mount Vernon and the title to it. And so, you know, how do you see that as as part yeah. of that story? Yeah. Well, there are two uh, two pieces to that. I know you're going to go back to the question of um, <laughs> of inheritance through of, uh, of enslaved right. people, and yeah. I want to get to that um, very soon. But on the question of Mount Vernon as uh, as physical property, so, you know, I don't think that we typically consider Mount Vernon as an estate that George Washington inherited from his dead toddler niece. Mm-hmm. We don't usually talk yeah. about it that way. <laughs> well, I really didn't even think about it until you, I was reading your article. I'm like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. But that's a, that is yeah. why that is why George Washington has Mount Vernon. So, uh, you know, his his brother Lawrence has um, has four children. Um, on the family tree, he lists three of them. Only one of those was living when he mm-hmm. when he wrote this piece. Um, and then another was born after that. That's how we know, in part, how to precisely date this, um, because uh, the third child had not yet died, mm-hmm. um, and the fourth had not yet been born. Um, but it is that fourth child, the fourth daughter, um, I think her name is Sarah, unless I'm forgetting. No, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Sarah, who um, inherits her father's property, and then Lawrence Washington's will is pretty particular about how um, should she die, then the property will be um, uh, administered by his mm-hmm. widow, who 
very quickly remarries. Within two years, she's married. Um, so George Washington comes to Mount Vernon first as um, having leased the property mm-hmm. from the widow of his um, of his brother, and then he actually is able to purchase it. Um, and because you know, mm-hmm. it, because there is no heir to his brother. Right. You know, I, I was thinking too. You know, we always think about. Well, I mean, the marketing phrase here, George Washington's Mount Vernon. Yeah. But it has a long history yeah. before that. Uh, yeah. And we don't even think about it. And Yeah. It, it was Sarah Washington's before it was George yeah, Washington's. It was Sarah Washington's Mount Vernon. And yeah. it just happens to become his by virtue yes. of her death and then yes. you know, other proceedings. Well, yes. let's talk about the enslaved community then. Because, yeah. uh, you know, one of the, the important things he also does on this document is, is list tithables. Mm-hmm. Um, the tax he has to pay on. Uh, enslaved people, free white people, indented people. Um, but genealogy is also a very important part of establishing family relationships amongst the enslaved community as well. And so what, what can we learn about the early enslaved community at Mount Vernon and subsequent to that from this particular document? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, what's so remarkable about this document um, in the way that it reflects the totality of Virginia society is that on the one side, George Washington has done this genealogical chart that we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, just a few years later, he writes this list of tithables. Mm-hmm. Because the document is miscatalogued uh, at the Library of Congress and because, in fact, that tithables list is not cataloged, mm-hmm. um, in fact, that list of tithables was not included in the very comprehensive or attempted to be comprehensive list of tithables that's at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Oh, yeah. um, you know, these, these tithables lists are scarce, and mm-hmm. they're really important for understanding the family relationships and the experience of enslaved people in 18th century Virginia. So this one was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually this one was missing from Mount Vernon, too. So Mount Vernon has, yeah. as you know, uh, you know, a database of people enslaved at Mount Vernon with every document that lists... Um, those people and their, you know, their connections. And this was missing from that as well. So, you know, I feel like this, this piece of paper, it was missing for a long time. Mm -hmm. It also just, you know, in one piece of paper on two sides encapsulates so much because George Washington on one side is calculating his lineage and on the other side, he is calculating the benefit to him Mm -hmm. directly Mm -hmm. of that lineage. So on this tithable list, which um, most of the people on that list, almost all of them, uh, can be uh, found in other um, estate papers Mm -hmm. here, Lawrence Washington's estate um, papers, and a few of the people are on their father, Augustine Washington's um, uh, estate papers, estate settlement as well. So uh, we can, you know, we can build a little more of a picture of them. In Lawrence Washington's estate papers, we can see a few more things about the people who are listed there mm-hmm. in their family relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the fundamental thing we know, right, is that these people are enslaved because their mothers were enslaved. Right. So they were born into slavery um, unless they were brought um, directly from Africa or from the Caribbean or, or somewhere else. But they are enslaved because their mothers are enslaved. So mm-hmm. there's a fundamentally genealogical principle at work there. The other thing that we know is that um, in the Chesapeake in the 18th century, there is a fairly dense family relationship network Mm -hmm. among enslaved people. It's a particularity of the demographic situation and the economic situation in the 18th century Chesapeake. And wonderful scholars have written about this, Lorena Walsh and, of course, Mary Thompson's wonderful book um, about the enslaved at Mount Vernon um, and lots, lots of other work. 
Um, but so we know that those people who are on that tithable list on the flip side of Washington's genealogy um, have dense family connections. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how to tease those out. And we can mm-hmm. do some of that through some of the other mm-hmm. documents. So I know you know, that Maul, who's listed there, is probably the daughter of another man who's listed there, Frank, um, just for one example. Well, and it also helps us to tie people who would have been in Mount Vernon but also may have had kin spread, you know, spread across the Chesapeake, different plantations. Yeah. You know, I think I mean, one of the important points I think the article makes, but then also building off a lot of the work that Mary has done recently, is to, is to really reinforce the point that um, slavery was not confined to plantations you know, individually. You know, these family right. networks were spread out right. all over the place. Right. Uh, and that was one of the challenges of being enslaved is that you're, you, you were not near your family right. all the time. Right, right. And those family relationships are not... Uh, mm-hmm. You can't control um, how and when you spend time mm-hmm. with your family. That's entirely, you know, it, um, up to uh, enslavers like Washington. Um, and there's, uh, it's hard to really encapsulate the violence um, that slavery does to individuals and families in a society. Um, I'll just say that uh, the violence it does to to family relationships is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's ironic that we're talking about a document that is all about family. Absolutely. But, you know, it helps to enable and sustain that kind of violence at the same time. I think that's why it's so important to see genealogy um, in this kind of fuller picture. Mm-hmm. That is, um, genealogy is a legal premise sure. um, that it, is, it undergirds slavery, uh, every aspect of slavery, not just how people become enslaved through their mother's status, but also the way that they are inherited mm-hmm. um, through this system of property mm-hmm. descent um, by enslavers like Washington. Yeah. Well, this document was clearly important to Washington as a younger man. What value did it hold for him as a as an older man? Well, we don't know. <laughs> um, That's book two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so... Uh, it is a fascinating and mysterious thing what happens to even, you know, a very prominent individual like Washington. What happens to their papers when they die? And how do we come to have and to interact with those collections of papers? And what happens to Washington's papers while he's alive and then once he's dead and they scatter a mm-hmm. bit to the winds sure, yeah. is an extraordinary story in and of itself. And I think it's really relevant for how we know what we know about the past. You know, we didn't know this about Washington in part because of decisions that were made mm-hmm. by for cataloging purposes and what seemed important and what's un- unimportant. But I think we can say that, you know, Washington saved it. That we know. Yeah. He saved it. And he saved it and he wrote on it on the one side as a teenager, turned it over and wrote on it, you know, as a young adult, maybe four years later. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we know about it is that he folded it in thirds and he gave it a label, Genealogy of the Washington Family in Virginia. And mm-hmm. because of the way his handwriting changes over time and for other uh, reasons to do with internal and external evidence and context, I'm fairly certain that he wrote that label in the early 1790s. Yeah. Um, so the way it's folded and the placement of that label suggests that he put it in his filing system. Mm-hmm. Um, I want. I had it. one great experience last summer here at Mount Vernon was uh, meeting some of the team who work on uh, the collections at the estate mm-hmm. um, and in the house and doing, um, you know, renovation, careful reconstruction and so on. Um, and 
they very nicely took me over and let me go into the study early in the morning before visitors were oh. on site. So we could see if this folded in thirds paper, uh-huh. I made a little facsimile for myself. Yeah. Actually, it's really true. This is such a nerdy thing. But <laughs> the pictures that I took of the document at the Library of Congress, I had them photocopied in color. And then I sized them according yeah. to the, the measurements that I'd taken of the document. And then you can see where the fold is. So I'd created this facsimile of the document. So we took that facsimile and um, placed it in um, in the shelving unit mm-hmm. to see, you know, is this exactly the size? Indeed, it is. It's a it's a sort of standard size paper for the yeah. time, kind of seven ish by nine ish. So that fold would have been consistent. So sure, he he could have kept it there. He also could have kept it in the many stacks and boxes of papers mm-hmm. that he had all over the closets around the study. Um, but we know he kept it, yeah. and I think that itself is quite significant. Well, that's some serious detective work, <laughs> and you got to go in the study. Exactly. I, yeah. I've not been beyond the barriers. Yeah, to be. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was really great. It was really great. Yeah. One of these days. Well, I mean, speaking of Georges, who are awfully concerned with their lineage and and wanting to see themselves as great patriarchs, um, one of the other hats you wear is uh, as the academic lead on the in the United States for the Georgian Papers Program. Um, folks have heard me mention this briefly on occasion on the podcast, but. I was kind of waiting till the boss got here to explain it. And so <laughs> would you uh, would you mind telling telling the folks at home what this great enterprise is? Well, the Georgian Papers program is a great enterprise. that is that is for sure. It is um, it is a project which will now be about a ten year project. We've just marked year five. so another another five years. Um, to digitize and disseminate and interpret, that's the fast way of saying Mm -hmm. it, about 425,000 pages of Georgian monarch manuscripts that are in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle. That's 100,000 more than I think... Well, I got involved. Yeah, four hundred twenty-five thousand pages. We try. We're careful to say pages, not 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 items, yeah. but pages. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for you know, and it is uh, the core partnership is um, uh, the Royal Collection Trust, which um, manages the Royal Archives along with the Royal Household. So, the Royal Collection Trust, um, King's College London, mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary um, institution, and also has an incredible history department as well as um, digital labs. Um, William and Mary and the Omohundro Institute, mm-hmm. which I which I direct, and for us, for the Omohundro Institute, this project is such an amazing opportunity in advance of 2026, in advance of marking the 250th anniversary yeah. of independence, to really liberate, in some sense, what I think may be the last great private archive that can speak to mm-hmm. the revolutionary era. And we've certainly learned a lot about it in the course of this project. Well, how did how did the project come about? Well, I think there are lots of origin stories, uh, as as many, uh, you know, any project, institution, nation, mm-hmm. all have different origin stories. But one origin story is that the, the Royal Archives uh, is, as you know, Jim, yeah. at Windsor. It is, uh, the materials are kept inside that extraordinary round tower. Anyone who's seen a picture of Windsor or visited Windsor knows the round tower that sits right at the heart of Windsor Castle. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it has begun in the 12th century. It is quite an extraordinary edifice, and the Royal Archives are at the top of that that tower, which is to say it's not a particularly accessible place, and because yeah. it is Windsor Castle is one of the Queen's primary residences, it is a place that is governed by national security concerns and, and so on. So there are just lots of ways in which the Royal Archives is not particularly accessible. Sure. It is also 
those archives are the Queen's private archive. They're mm-hmm. not like a national, you know, it's not like the National Archives here yeah. where we think of, you know, the U.S. National Archives. Those are our property collectively mm-hmm. as, as U.S. citizens. But these are the Queen's private archives. Um, so there, there are a lot of accessibility concerns. And I think the Georgian papers provided an opportunity through digitization to make material in those archives mm-hmm. accessible around the world. Um, and it's an extraordinary... I think a really extraordinary contribution. Um, I've met a lot of very interesting people in my life, um, but really it was an incredible moment to meet Her Majesty and to speak with her about the archives Mm -hmm. and to speak about this incredible collection. But honestly, I think anyone involved in the project would say the reason it got going is because the Queen said, do it. Um, That she was invested, uh, invested in all kinds of ways in it, um, but she authorized this to happen. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get permission to rummage around in her own stuff unless she says yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that that is uh, one of the fun things. Whenever I, I do write some something that includes Georgian papers material, I do get to thank Her Majesty the Queen in yes. the acknowledgement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just sort yes. of surreal and yeah. fun at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it is, yeah, cool. it is, it's a super great project. And obviously the... You know, for those of us who are early Americanists, the material um, around George III mm-hmm. and around the time of the revolution is is, is deeply important and illuminating. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, as someone who works on the history of genealogy, there are other pieces of it that have been really, really interesting, oh, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, Queen Charlotte uh, spends a lot of time writing about royal lineages. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written a little bit for, um, for so, uh, an exhibit on the Georgian Papers website. That's georgianpapers.com. You can all visit it. Uh, <laughs> but I've written a little bit about uh, why Queen Charlotte is so interested in um, Sophia of Hanover, who provides the link between the Stuarts of the 17th century oh, and yeah. the Hanovers of the 18th century. It really explains why her husband is king in mm-hmm. some crucial way. And she rewrites this lineage of Sophia of Hanover multiple times. Um, anyway, so so there, you know, I've had... My own particular research interests yeah. have been have been satisfied in addition to, you know, lots of other um, really important work that the Georgian Papers is, is turning up, such well, as and, your own. And, and um, well, thank you. Um, and besides the digitization and, and besides some of the scholarship that's that's going on, I mean, what are you what are some of the uh, the projects that have developed as a consequence of this initiative? Well, the first thing we really did, I mean, I can literally remember sitting in a in a group at a a celebratory dinner after we had this launch at Windsor in the presence of the Queen, mm-hmm. um, and you know, saying to a couple of key players there, "All right, we need fellowships yeah. right away. We need fellowships. We need to fund fellowships." And you know, Jim, were you the very first, or were you like the second? I was the first OI fellow. Yeah, yeah. you were the first OI. I fellow. was the guinea pig. The guinea pig, right? The first, <laughs> right, 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 right. The oh, first uh, canary down that coal mine. It turned out to be well. You, it, you emerged. Well, I, I will never forget the day I got an email from you, and, and you said, and it was to me and Ben Coretta. Who yes. Came a month after me, yes. and you said, "I want I want to let both of you know that the royal household knows who you are." And you put in parentheses, "Yes, that royal household." <laughs> I'm like, well, this is real now. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Well, we knew that you know if we could create fellowship opportunities for scholars mm-hmm. right off the bat, we would get people in. You know, as the process of digitization was ongoing, mm-hmm. you know, because digitization, you know, it's we're at hundreds of thousands of of 
uh, items are already online. But we're, you know, it's going to be, it's, this is a really long project. Yeah. But if we could get these fellowships to allow people to go into the archive to work with the paper materials while we were doing the digitization, we would be able to contextualize mm -hmm. and interpret that material and do some exciting programming around it and bring, really bring the world into this archive um, and take that archive into the world. So, you know, the OI alone has funded almost 50 uh, fellows up to this wow. point. Yeah. And uh, King's College has fellowships. Mount Vernon has uh, has yep. an important fellowship. Uh, the Sons of the American Revolution has a has a professorship at King's College. Um, the Library of Love Congress, Congress. Um, co-sponsors a fellowship with the OI that is um, that is uh, a GPP fellowship, which mm -hmm. is I have to say amazing. You get to spend time at Windsor and at the Library of yeah. Congress. I got to say, that's, that's such a winner. That's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, we've, I mean, scholars have turned up so much amazing yeah. stuff. I mean, you've reinterpreted this one quite crucial piece of writing that right. people for centuries now have been trying to understand. Oh, the America's Lost The America's essay. Lost yeah. essay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, not, not so much of the king giving up, but uh, of, <laughs> of his reading habits and, and rethinking the state of the empire in the 18th yeah. century. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But people had interpreted that in a very specific yeah. way, you yeah. know, and you, you know, you helped us to see that differently and to see the king differently mm -hmm. as a result, see his relationship to the empire and particularly to North America. But, you know, there have been so many different kinds of, um, there's been just so much rich work. We have been able to see um, how it is that the Georgian court was thinking about philanthropy, how mm -hmm. the Georgian court was thinking about abolition in this yeah. period, how they, how the king was understanding his relationship to the military um, during the revolution. He's quite an obsessive guy. He and was in charge. He knew it. Down to the last bridal <laughs> provisioned. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and, and from my perspective also, just understanding uh, women at the court, um, both women who were Queen mm -hmm. Charlotte's ladies, but also women who were working at the court, this whole range of people who were influenced, thinking about race and the structure of race and how uh, slavery in, North Ameri in the North American colonies, but also... Um, the Mansfield decision and thinking about how slavery in Britain was yeah. being understood. There's there's so much that this... I, I always say, if you could take this archive, the very center of Anglo-imperial power, and make it speak to issues around the kind of global imperial mm -hmm. context, you can do that with lots of things. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a method as much as it is an archive. Well, I mean, it's... I've been having fun for the last <laughs> few years being part of it, and I know. I think one of the amazing things is just that how much different kind of work has come out of it, as you as you say. Um, you know, questions that that people never thought to ask. But part of that process, as you said, was getting people in there and saying, "What, what the hell is in this thing?" Yeah. Because there there was a, a catalog, but it was yeah. the papers were cataloged at at what librarians would know as the the major collection levels, not yeah. at the item level. And yeah. so, while some of the king's papers had been published. A whole heck of a lot had yeah. never been seen yeah. by most people. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that stuff that was published, we understand it so differently so now differently, yeah. for yeah. seeing the context and also seeing, yeah. well, as we've just been demonstrating with this George Washington piece, you know, what people leave out right. is quite instructive. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the, the day I came across, I was looking through the King's calendar correspondence, and that, that means that those papers were published. But in one folder, there were all of these um, extracts and copies of letters sent from the Treasury and the War Department to the king yeah. 
detailing the first mobilizations uh, of troops and money and materiel over to the colonies. And so, <laughs> just you, a small matter. Just a small. I mean, here you've got the king paying attention to exactly yeah. what's happening yeah. as he's trying to suppress the rebellion yeah. that's breaking out. And, and I was just, that was just incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I, that should have warranted a footnote in the 1920s when they were doing <laughs> the published papers, but. Um, but I mean that's why we that's why we do what we do. Indeed. Uh, well, finally, um, it, as you mentioned, you are the director of the Omaha Institute of Early American History and Culture, um, and I, I do want to just sort of ask you very briefly. You know what 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 is the OI's mission? I mean, what uh, I know what the OI's mission is, but uh, <laughs> but for the folks at home, um, what is uh, what does it mean to be the premier research institution for early American history? Well, one thing it means is that um, there is a tradition of work mm-hmm. um, that we can draw on, and that's that's very important. But the OI's mission um, has long been to support scholars and scholarship in the very capacious field of uh, early American studies, and also uh, to make that work as available as possible for the public good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we we do an awful lot of work bringing scholarship to the people. We have a podcast of our own. Yeah. Um, as you know, uh, Ben Franklin's ben world. Ben Franklin's world with sure. Liz Covart, the host. Yeah, um, and uh, and you should look for more in the new year. Just saying, oh, yeah. a little bit of a heads up there. You should look <laughs> for more, more audio from the OI in the yeah. new year. Um, and we also oh, besides Liz, mm, and we also oh. sponsor. Uh, we sponsor a lot of wide range of digital mm-hmm. initiatives. We developed an app in conjunction um, with tremendous support from Adobe. We developed an app. Yeah. To experiment with digital long-form reading, um, and actually, this 2.0 on that app is actually going to launch in the new year. Also, that's very exciting. Um, we have digital uh, projects and websites um, that we support. So we're trying um, in all kinds of ways mm-hmm. to enhance our collaboration with other organizations, such as we have a we have a, a new fellowship with Mount Vernon. In fact, we do digital collections fellowship. Indeed, to encourage scholars and archivist librarians to work together mm-hmm. to identify necessary collections to digitize mm-hmm. and make available. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have um, we have awarded more fellowships in the last six years than we did in the seventy years um, prior. So we have really enhanced our support for scholars wow. and diversified our kind of um, support for scholars. Uh, and we think. Well, as in the Georgian Papers program, yeah. that providing that kind of support for scholars gives us, a, you know, a lot of diverse content to then try to bring, you mm-hmm. know, bring forward to the public in the best way that we can. We're not a public history organization. There are lots of organizations that do public history in an excellent, excellent way. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is scholarship, but we also have um, a firm commitment to making that scholarship as available as possible. Mm-hmm. I think um, the scholarly method of uh, making an argument and backing it up with sources and making those sources of your argument transparent, that, um, you know, that is actually the stuff of democracy as well as scholarship. So we think it's important to do. Well, I mean, footnote everything. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And encourage everyone to um, appreciate the purpose of a footnote, which is transparency and accountability. Exactly. What could be more democratic than apparency and and, uh, (laughs) accountability? But not endnotes. Footnotes, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Footnotes. Um, Don't make me flip to the back of the book. Come on. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Quit making it harder. Yeah. What did, so what did you when did you assume command of the mission over there? 2013. 2013. Yeah, okay. 2013. Yeah. So, um, so and, six and years. What was your what were your ambitions when you came in? What did you what did you want hope to achieve? Well, um, you know, 
the Institute has been publishing the William & Mary Quarterly uh, since 1943. It's an, a really a stunning um, legacy of scholarship, mm-hmm. and we've published an extraordinary range of books which, you know, we say have kind of framed the field of early American studies for a long time. Incredible legacy of, um, of conferences and events, of convening scholars around important conversations. At some level, I thought, well, I don't want to screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's mission one, yeah. you know, don't screw it up. But also, I wanted to, um, to reflect on that mm-hmm. legacy and think about what that legacy has meant um, in a couple different dimensions. Let me just give uh, two examples. One would be that, uh, you know, we wanted to use our website to better communicate what kinds of work we had been supporting in the past. So, for example, the OI had been sponsoring um, a series of focused conferences and convenings mm-hmm. around um, research on slavery. Since 1999, we sponsored a conference that kicked off um, the launch of the, uh, the, uh, the slave trade database. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary resource, right? It's yeah. really remade yeah, in yeah. many ways our understanding of the slave trade. Um, that conference, other conferences, we hosted a conference in Ghana um, to mark the British efforts to end uh, the slave trade, the international slave trade. Um, anyway, we wanted to bring all of that together. So that's just an example of highlighting. Bring it all together mm-hmm. and highlight what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. Related to that, you know, we've done things like reflect on what does it mean to bear the name Omohundro. Silas Omohundro was, a, a um, you know, if not the most powerful, certainly one of the most powerful slave traders in uh, 19th century Richmond. What sure. does it mean for yeah. an organization um, that sponsors early American history to bear the name of a slave trader? Mm-hmm. We don't, the Omohundro name is not a direct descent from Silas Omohundro, yeah. but as my you know, work on genealogy says, it's not just about the direct descent, <laughs> right? It is actually about what is the legacy of that name. Um, so I, I wrote about that. Interestingly, um, uh, Malvern Omohundro, who uh, gave the institute an important legacy and for whom the Omohundro Institute mm-hmm. is named, um, had a great uncle. Silas Omohundro was a slave trader. He also had a great aunt, Elizabeth Van Lu, who was the most oh, significant yeah. yeah, union spy in Richmond. I'll be darned. But, you know, because we, we think about things in a British-American context yeah. in patrilineal terms, right. we think about that Omohundro name. And it doesn't mean that the Van Lu legacy for the Omohundro family, mm-hmm. you know, sort of somehow washes the Omohundro slave trading. It, yeah. it doesn't, but it, it does demonstrate the complexity of mm-hmm. how we think about this past. It's also true that Van Lu herself is a, a fairly complex character. Yeah, sure. But yeah. nonetheless, it was... It, um, so thinking about the Omohundro's own history, mm-hmm. being good historians of our institution, that's one thing for sure yeah. I wanted to do, in addition to, you know, kind of bear down on how digital technology is changing our work, mm-hmm. Um, research and publication and, you know, transmission to the public um, audiences and so on. Those were some things I was interested in doing. Well, and where do you see the OI going next? Well, I, you know, I think uh, 2026 is a pretty extraordinary mm-hmm. opportunity, and we've been thinking about that really, well, for the last six years. It's yeah, part, of, sure. part of our commitment to the Georgian Papers Program, but other projects as well. We think about 2026 as an important opportunity to illuminate the early American past as a pretty complex violent, diverse place, mm-hmm. not as kind of red and white bunting, easily, you know, summarized story of national unity, yeah. not at all. I think that story of more complexity and frankly, more violence 
more diversity, a more fraught past, serves us better as we understand what is actually a pretty difficult period on, in our mm-hmm. own history now. So we're pretty focused on 2026 yeah. and thinking about how we can bring the widest, most capacious understanding of the early American past, fully continental, fundamentally native, very much about mm-hmm. slavery, as well as Anglo-American law and governance into this kind of year of national commemoration in 2026. Well, that sounds good to me. I'm particularly excited to see where things go next. And uh, as you know, um, I will jump as high as you want me to <laughs> whenever, whenever you <laughs> You're call. You're very kind, so, Jim. Very um, kind. And so I'm, um, I, you know, I think uh, it looks like we're probably at time here. But uh, I just want to thank you very much uh, for taking the time on your last day here at Mount Vernon on your fellowship to talk uh, to me and to our listeners at home. And um, we're looking forward to your book and to what the OI does next. Thanks so much, Jim. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our sound engineer was Mason Shelby. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.